0: Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for another church in our area. I want to pray for a uh, new life uh, in Cato. I want to pray for Butch and Darlene. Um, Lord, I pray for Butch that he is, uh, I guess, just on a simple, basic level, that he has time to study. Lord, I pray that he is taking time to study. Lord, I pray that you'll guard Butch from uh, the same thing that you'd guard me from and the other preachers uh, in this town or those who are standing and preaching and teaching each week from uh, being driven by satisfying folks or tickling ears or um, I guess being too focused on even what people's needs may be. Lord, I pray first and foremost that Butch, myself, other pastors, preachers, teachers in this community will be driven by what you'd have us expose first and foremost. And I pray that that comes from time in the Word. I pray that you would guard Butch from the same thing you'd guard me and the other pastors from is this expectation of being a chaplain and being everywhere at all times, in all places, ministering to every need. But the deacons can deacon. And that elders, pastors, preachers can elder, pastor, and preach. Lord, if there's not a plural leadership at this church, I pray for that. I pray that you'll expose that to uh, Butch and to the leadership of the church, that they would move in that direction. Lord, I pray that they uh, will expose the truth of the gospel. I pray that you'd guard them from the trappings of, um, I guess, even the blessings of the gospel from worshiping those things and being focused on worshiping the center, uh, the creator, the worker of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from that as well, that we, we don't love what you've done for us more than we love who you are. Lord, in these next few minutes, pray for this, this church, New Life in Caddo, and pray for Crosspoint this morning that we're dining, that we're available, that we're attentive, that we've come to eat. And not to get our church on, not to get a check in the block, fulfill our duty for the day, but that we are come to seeking nourishment. Lord, we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> turn to John chapter 15. Starting in verse 18. <clears throat> if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. Those of y'all that, I, I guess, out there, this is kind of a weird question in the middle of a sermon. Are you, is this light pulsing? Is it for you? It is for me. It's driving me crazy. If it's not for you, I'll press on. Okay, it may be the fans. Huh? What, no, don't turn them off? Yeah, I do. Do? Okay. Ashley has her parka on. <laughs> Frigid, teeth chattering. It's not the fan. Something is going on up here. Or maybe I'm pulsing. Maybe just inside my head. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Last few weeks, we sort of immersed ourselves in this paragraph, and it's produced, this is the fifth sermon from this chapter, or this little section of this chapter, some really important truths that we've gleaned from this paragraph are, first of all, that Jesus is telling his 11, and vicariously through the written word, he's communicating with us, one Fellowship 2,000 years later, that by nature of our citizenship in this contrary kingdom, that we too will be hated. Some things that he's developed here in this paragraph is that you're going to be hated because you're a foreigner. You're not of this world. That would be true of the 11. That would be true of us for those who are in Christ. We're going to be hated because we're chosen out of this world. We're going to be hated because we serve a different master. If you're driven by what God thinks of you more than what your workmates think of you, that will chap some people off. You may not realize this. You may think about this. People love to have influence over each other, and they like to be able to pull each other's strings a little bit. And when they see that you're not pulled by those strings, that you don't have any horizontal strings necessarily, but you have a vertical string, then that's going to make some folks mad. You're going to be hated because you serve a different master. You're going to be hated because you bear a different name. And you, like your master, will be hated without a cause. The last couple of weeks, uh, the first couple of weeks of this, we just kind of explored this passage. The last couple of weeks, we've been asking and answering some specific questions. A couple of weeks ago, we asked and answered the question, what does it mean if you're not hated? If you never experience hatred from the world on account of Christ's name, what does that mean? (laughs) I hope that you've heard that message or you go back and listen to that. Last week, we considered how are we to respond to being hated? What's the appropriate response if we are hated for Christ's sake? And this Sunday, we're going to deal with what I think may be the most difficult question, but maybe the most important question. If we are like our master to be hated, then we're going to be hated for the reasons that he was hated. And I want to take you to a passage before I explain the question. Look at John chapter 7, verse 7. I introduced this verse, this passage a few weeks ago, as sort of a, um, a tool to help us understand why Christ was hated, and I introduced it as Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is a great example why I need to be accountable for everything I say in and out of a sermon. And I want, I want you all to know that I'm accountable and I'm approachable, because I communicated this as Jesus is speaking to his disciples and saying, you're not going to be hated yet. Now, some of y'all read context, you're going, ah, that's not right. And contextually, that was not right because he's speaking to his brothers. He's speaking to his brothers who have not believed in him. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. They're saying, go on up to the festival. Jesus, go on up there and do your miracles. And it says, for not even his own brothers believed in him. So Jesus is speaking to his unbelieving brothers. And he says this. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. Why, is it, why can the world not hate you? Because you're of the world, brothers. That's, he's speaking to unbelieving brothers. James, uh, Jude, remember the two, boys, two brothers we met last week? See, the world cannot hate you because essentially you're of the world, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. James and Jude aren't going to do that. They're unbelieving brothers. But those who follow Christ, those who are servants of our master, will be hated for that reason because we testify about the world that its works are evil, just like our master did. So the question we're going to explore today is how are we to... Like our master, testify about the world that its works are evil? It's a tough question. It's one that I've talked with elders about, I've talked with friends about, talked with the staff about. It is a, talked with Christy about. It's a difficult question because the fear over these five weeks is that we've created some spiritual Barney Fifes. Some of y'all that are older my age, you know who I'm talking about. Barney Fife was a, a character, I meant to do some research on this yesterday to make sure I got this right. We only got Channel 5 when I was growing up, so if it wasn't on NBC, we lived out in the swamps in Louisiana, for real, and we only got Channel 5, and this wasn't on, our, on TV, but I have seen it enough, the Andy Griffith Show, to know who Barney Fife is and to know what, who Barney Fife is like. He's a real high-pitched, kind of whiny guy that would have no power or influence over anyone except that someone give him a badge. And my fear is that over the last five weeks that we could potentially give a bunch of folks this badge that say, go fix everybody. Citizen on patrol. (laughs) That's what Barney talked like. I saw a car in the parking lot yesterday. They had a bike race on the road here. Citizen on patrol is what it says. That we could be driving our citizen on patrol cars with the fish on the back. Talking real high-pitched. I don't want to condemn all fishes on the back of your car but that we could be spiritual Barney Fifes scares me to death. So that's why this is a seriously important question for us to deal with. If we are going to be like our master, we're going to be hated like our master, how are we to testify that the world's works are evil without being spiritual Barney Fifes? We're going to first deal with how not to be a Barney Fife. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. To answer the question, we're going to deal with sort of what the answer isn't first. We're going to kind of shade in the area around where we want to be so we can understand where not to be. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think, is going to be illuminating to understand this. I'm going to start in verse 1 for the sake of context. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, he's writing to professing believers. He's writing to a church. Now, understand that. And of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. Even non-believers would look at that and go, "Ooh, that's pretty vile. That's despicable. For a man has has his father's wife. He says, and you are arrogant. You're arrogant about this sexual immorality. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I've spent my life in church, and it's only in the last few years have I ever had the chance to see a church try and follow through on this. It's the hardest thing I've ever been part of, but it's biblical. If there's unrepentant sin in the church, that the church deal with that. The church deals with unrepentant sin, and that's what he's speaking of here. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's the implication. We're talking about a dude that's unrepentant. It goes on in verse 3. It says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment. Wait a second. Judgment? Paul? Is that just because you're Paul? Is just because you started the church and you're writing the letter? He's going to go on and explain the role of the church says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, this unrepentant man, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit might be saved, or may be saved, in the day of the Lord. Paul is not saying, you know, I know... Melvin, let's give him a name. I know Melvin is saved because I was there the day he walked the aisle. I was, the day, I was there the day I saw his white knuckles free up from the pew back on the seventh stanza of Just As I Am. I know he's saved, so we just got to figure this thing out. Paul says, this guy is unrepentant. He's professing to be a brother, and we're going to turn him over to Satan. That's, there's a name for that. It's called church discipline. It's what every church should practice. Some of y'all may be hearing that going, man, I've never heard such a thing. It's right there. It's right here in our Bibles. Turn this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's also not pronouncing that this dude's going to hell. Melvin is doomed for hell. He's saying, man, I hope that the Lord uses church discipline to jerk this guy's chain to bring him to a place of repentance, that he may be saved by the skin of his teeth. It says, you're boasting, though, church, is not good. You do not know, or do you not know, that a little leaven, a.k.a. sin, leavens the whole lump. Leaven's like yeast. I hope most of y'all know what that is. It fills the whole loaf. Just, it grows, it infiltrates. That's what sin does in the church. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, sinful leaven, the leaven of malice, evil, we could say sexual immorality in addition, given the context, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now listen to where this is going. I wrote to you in my letter, this indicates that there was even a first 1 Corinthians that we don't have. Remember, this is First Corinthians. I wrote to you in this letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Don't withdraw from the world altogether. because he says, are the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters? Since then, you would need to go out of the world. That's really the Christian response to a sinful lost world in large part. Hunker down, huddle up, and withdraw. Get away from them. They got cooties. We might catch it. He's a cusser. I might catch it. I can't hear those kind of words. I might turn into a lost person. We withdraw from the world is what he's saying. He's not saying, when he's telling them not to associate with sexually immoral people, he's not talking about the worldly, lost, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. He's talking about supposedly found people. It says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He's speaking of those who are professing to be found. It says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul, the guy that says, I judge this man from a distance says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not my place to judge the uh, greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters who don't know Christ. He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is a helpful passage for me to understand how, how do we restrain the potential Barney Fife We go to this passage and understand where we should be oriented primarily in regards to scrutinizing and judging. It's a common church practice to be so critical of those who don't know Christ, yet let each other get away with murder. Those who don't know Christ, it shouldn't surprise us. Those who don't know Christ will medicate with drugs or liquor or sex. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us when those who don't know Christ will want to redefine marriage as a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It shouldn't surprise us when those who don't know Christ consider an unborn child as a bother and an interruption to their plans and essentially eradicate life. Of course, those who don't know Christ will slander and squander and gossip. They'll be greedy and potentially thoughtless and selfish. What should really surprise us is when somebody does not know Christ and they don't do those things. I remember when the trade centers fell and the shock, the world is experiencing this shock. I did too, but my shock quickly turned into, I'm surprised it doesn't happen every day considering lostness considering where most people live and move, our responsibility primarily is directed inside the church. Our responsibility for judging is directed inside the church. We have the responsibility to rebuke and admonish and judge within the body. And if you're sitting here reeling from that, I want to confess to you that I need that. I want that. I haven't always, but I need it and I want it now because I know what God has done with it. There's far more at stake than my pride and my feelings. I need this and want this in my life. Psalm 141 verse 5. Don't turn there. Just listen. It says this. It says, let a righteous man strike me as a, it is a kindness. Let him box my ears. In old-fashioned terms. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. I need this. And whether you know it or not, you need this. That's the role of the church. Not as meddlers, but as brothers and sisters who are involved in each other's lives. Because there's more at stake than your feelings or your reputation or your pride. There's the name of Jesus it's attached to how we live and how we love. But what about the lost world? Going back to our question of how to deal with this, what about the lost world? We are not citizens on patrol judging lost people. We don't have the responsibility of walking around at work saying, sinner, sinner, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. You're probably going to hell. That's not our responsibility to judge outsiders. How then do we testify about the world that its works are evil? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I would offer up that the primary means for testifying about the world that its works are evil is that we enjoy Christ out loud. I think this is probably one of my... uh, Favorite passages in the Bible—I say that about so many passages—but this one is for the moment my favorite. For right now, <clears throat> in Second Corinthians chapter two, someone shared this passage with me when I was ordained into the, the uh, preaching ministry, and it's one that's meant a lot to me, and it's one that's meant a lot to the life of this church. Let's go there now, chapter two, verse fourteen. Paul says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Key word. Through us spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In one aroma, this is what, where I want you to understand this passage. In one aroma, in one worship event, in one worship lifestyle, in one uh, worldview, to one group of people is going to smell that and go, that stinks. That's stupid. That doesn't make sense. No thanks. And the very same thing, we're not talking about something different. The very same thing to another group of people will say, That smells good. That smells like life. To those who are perishing, to a lost world that is not responsive to the gospel, worship says, man, that's stupid. No thanks. That smells lame. That smells uptight. That smells ridiculous. And the very same thing to those who are living and being saved, smells like life. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one from death to death, that's the ones who who are perishing. To the other a fragrance from life to life. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, modifying the word, tailoring the word, softening the word, redirecting the word with smoke and mirrors, representing, repackaging the word. But we are as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And you go back to that key word, everywhere. The reality is in one event, one worship event, some will say that smells like life. Some will testify, you through that worship event, will be testified about that their works are evil when they smell it and that stinks. That smells ridiculous. That smells uptight. No thanks. A byproduct of out loud worship will be that somebody's going to feel the weight of judgment. Let me show you a couple of examples. Turn to John chapter 12. And while you're turning there, I'm going to show you the first example. the first example has to do with a man that we met a few weeks ago we've known likely if you've read the first part of your Bible you know about him in Genesis chapter 4 it says now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord bing there he is look at that and again she bore his brother Abel. You got two brothers, Cain and Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, this is the first picture, one of the first pictures we have of worship. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. An is key. He brought to the Lord a check in the block. Just here you go, God. Here's something, here's an effort. He brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock. He didn't wait. It doesn't look like he didn't wait until he saw if he was going to have ample flock. He didn't wait to find out if, if, if this firstborn had little brothers and sisters. He took his firstborn to God. And of their fat portions, fat, I mean special Portions, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Watch where he directs his anger. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's one of the earliest pictures we have in our Bible of being hated by the world. Hated for what? Hated without a cause. He's just worshiping. And the aroma of worship that smells so good to God, smells is a stench to Cain. He says, I'm going to put you out of your misery, boy. He takes him out in the field. And he kills him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He says, I do do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Abel is an example of enjoying God out loud. And it's going to hack somebody off. The other example that I want to share with you is in John chapter 12. You're already there. Give me a second to get there. John chapter 12. Beginning in verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Nard is an awesome picture of worship. Nard is, first of all, it is expensive. It's harvested from the base of the Himalayas, and it's, it's a perishable harvest. It's not like you take certain leaves from a living plant. You have to kill the plant. It comes from the root. It's a great picture of appropriate worship. A year's worth of nard is what she took, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled, listen, or just watch, let's smell this, with the fragrance of the perfume, an appropriate word. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This smells like death to me. You hear it? You see it? That's the aroma of death to me, Jesus. That's inefficient. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. Worship just smells bad to me, Judas is essentially saying. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I want to share with you the parallel story in Mark chapter 14, because there's an essential point that's brought out. You're also going to see the treasure of the gospels. Having four gospels is sort of like having four witnesses to one event. If you have four corners at an intersection where you have four witnesses standing at each corner, there's a wreck in the middle of the intersection, you have people with different vantage points. One guy's going to say, ah, he was looking to his left. The other guy's going to say, no, he's looking to his right. They're both right because they have different vantage points. And that's true of our gospels. They give us a real robust view of this night or this meal where Mary anointed Jesus. Listen to this count in Mark chapter 14. And while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, so we know that not only was he eaten with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, but he's in Simon the leper's home. It's kind of a bummer being called Simon the leper forever. Leper could have been any sort of skin condition. It could have been eczema. Simon, the man with eczema. But for the, I guess for the rest of his life, he's sort of like Rahab the prostitute. Leave the last part off. Just call me Rahab. Call me Simon. He's still Simon the leper. He's reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, if you're paying attention, you know over there in John, it said he poured it on his feet. Different vantage points. She anointed both his head and his feet is really what happened. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, so it wasn't just Judas, apparently there were some more than Judas, said, why was the ointment wasted like that? For well, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her, here hated by the world, in Simon the leper's home. 2,000 years later, thousands of miles west or east, depending on what direction you go. 2,000 years later, we're fulfilling this prophecy, essentially. We're talking about her worship. We're talking about not, the, not only did the fact that Simon likely smelled the aroma of nard in his home the next day, maybe even a week later as it wafted from room to room. It's wafted over 2,000 years and thousands of miles into Crosspoint Fellowship on this morning as we're smelling her worship. And with that one worship event, as we enjoy it and we say, man, that's awesome, that smells like life. In that context, some people said, what a waste. That smells like death. Out loud satisfaction of Christ will result in some people hating the worshiper. My charge to you, my encouragement to you in light of Abel and and Mary's example is to worship and enjoy Christ out loud everywhere like the verse we just read. You don't have to be a spiritual Barney Fife with a laser scope pointed at every center. All you have to do is enjoy Christ out loud. And worship happens, life happens, an aroma happens, and hatred happens. But the beauty is there's an encouragement in there. In that one worship event, a previous hater might become a future worshiper. What they hate today may be something that they smell later, and they say, so that smells good. So the charge for God's people is to speak and be true. The same with your neighbors, the same as we are in small group, the same as you are in your home. As men of sincerity, we speak in Christ everywhere i realize as i'm engaging this passage that some of you are going man that's novel that sounds like that would work i hear it in the word it makes sense but i can't show up to my job where i've been working for the last 18 years and all of a sudden start speaking about jesus because i'm the guy that's told a million dirty jokes or i'm the guy that laughs at all the dirty jokes Or I'm the guy that talks about nothing but work or money or stuff. How could I possibly show up and start talking about Jesus and enjoying Christ out loud? That just wouldn't work for me. They might hate me. And I'm saying exactly. Exactly. You enjoy Christ out loud in a context, in a setting that needs seasoning, in a context, in a setting that needs an aroma. You don't have to come in with an agenda. It frees you up from how am I going to maneuver to bring this lost dude that I work with to Christ. Enjoy Christ out loud in that setting and let God do something with that. And that ought to be liberating and freeing. I know it's intimidating and scary to think about showing up to a place where you've been maybe different from your Christian person for a long period of time. But man, you got to start somewhere and you got to start now and you got to respond and be obedient to the word as you hear it exposed. You have a responsibility to walk in what you've heard and worship out loud in that setting. It's a passage in Colossians. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen to it. Paul says to these guys, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What he's pointing to there is if your language is always gracious and it's always seasoned with salt, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's at home or whether it's in small group or whether it's in corporate worship, then you can handle that scenario or that situation that comes up at work and speak in Christ. You've prepared the soil. You've already seasoned it with salt. You can have verbal consistency because you're just being you. Problem is, we are like chameleons. We kind of melt into our surroundings, and they don't love Jesus at my office, so I can't talk about Jesus there. Yes, you can. You must. That's evangelism, enjoying Christ in that setting. Evangelism is not some scheme where you try and get them to church. It's not some scheme where you hope somebody knocks on their door and shares a faith outline with them. It's you enjoying Christ in that setting. That's evangelism. That's what we've been called to do. And the reality is we will be hated like our master was when we do that. But we won't be hated by everybody. God will use that thing that some people say I hate, I despise as the thing to potentially draw and attract others where they will hear the shepherd's voice through your worship. Speak and be true. Don't modify your talk in different surroundings. You know the guy I'm talking about. You might be the guy I'm talking about that talks like a sailor at work with no worship content, yet with these and thous and my favorite church word, midst, when they're gathered with the people of God. Man, that's an inconsistency that does not bring glory to God. It brings shame to the gospel that you walk in. Now, it's not quite as simple as just enjoying Christ out loud. There are occasions where you need to speak to sin. You need to address sin. We know that Christ did that. The woman that was about to be stoned in John chapter 8, he saved her from being stoned. And how did he end the, the account, the event? He looked her at it and he said, go and sin no more. We might have the impression that Jesus just hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and just let them be on their way and just hung out and had a good time with them and dined with them. But he spoke truth into those settings and those scenarios. The woman at the well in Samaria, he said, go get your husband. And she kind of hemmed and hawed and he said, I know you've had five husbands, but let's talk about worship. If we're going to be servants of our master, we may deal with sin in somebody's life, but that's not the focus of it. We're going to take it where Christ took it to worship. My father's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. If the Lord leads you to have a conversation, for example, with someone who's practicing, a lost person, who's practicing some sin, then it's got to make a beeline to worship. It's got to make a beeline to hope, a beeline to Christ. You may deal with that matter, but you've got to make a beeline to worship as Christ did. I'm gonna show you the last, probably the best hope that we have in not being spiritual Barney Fife's back in John chapter 15, turn there. We've read this paragraph enough over the last few weeks for you to know where we are contextually when we say the or at least to be familiar with the passage. When I say this last passage, they hated me without a cause. Now let's move on so we see this little paragraph in context. They hated me without a cause. Servants who will be hated just like I am. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, just like they did the blind dude in John chapter 9. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Hear, Saul. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Embedded within this, this engagement on being hated by the world, like sandwiched in the middle of it, is when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. As we're dealing with this question, how do we testify about the world that its works are evil? How does the rubber meet the road? How are we supposed to live on a Tuesday at the office, or on a Saturday afternoon in the neighborhood, or a Thursday night at the ball game, we've got to know and be encouraged by the reality that we've got the Holy Spirit that will guide us into all things. Embedded within this this conversation on being hated by the world, he says, but you know what? When I leave, I'm going to send the helper, and he's going to help you sort this out. I can't, even over the course of five sermons, tell you when to respond to who and how. That would be a huge mistake. Who's sufficient for these things? I'm not. But the Holy Spirit is sufficient to guide you in each of those circumstances in how to be salty and bright and seasoned and aromatic in that situation and in that setting. I'm encouraged by that reality that there's a, Passage on the Holy Spirit embedded right in the middle of this. I'm encouraged about it because I, you would think after five sermons on being hated by the world that things would be tidy. They're not tidy for me. In fact, they were tidier for me before we preached on being hated by the world because before we engaged these passages for the last five weeks, for me it was all the world out there is hateful and inside the church everybody loves each other. And over the last five weeks it's just gotten messy. Or I'm going, wait a second. Some of our most hateful moments might be in the church. How do we sort this thing out? We have the Holy Spirit. That's good because what I thought was so tidy is not tidy. Hatred by the world can be lostness, hating out loud worship. Hatred by the world can be supposed believers being downright hateful with slander and sabotage. It happens. Hatred by the world can be a believing husband being hateful to his wife because he's not enjoying Christ but is chasing the world. It happens. It happens to me. So men, I know it happens to you. Wives, say, hear, hear. Some of y'all even really said it. I wasn't telling you to say it. (laughs) Really poised and ready to say that. Man, it happens. We can be hateful. Hatred by the world can be within your own church family when somebody says, talk to the hand. I'll not be accountable to you. I know we entered into covenant together, but I go thus far and no farther. When you start getting into my business, that's where I say talk to the hand. Hated by worldliness, in that case. Within the church. Hatred by the world can come from people you've loved and ministered to. It's been a couple of years now, I think, and Scott pointed me to this psalm, but it's one that has um, broken my heart and ministered to me yet at the same time. Psalm from David. David says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. It says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, here's where it really gets heartbreaking. I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I'm talking about former friends. I, when they were sick, wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in the morning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered They gathered together against me, wretches whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast. They gnashed me with their teeth. Hatred often comes from nearby sources, familiar sources, sources that we may have even called friends at one time. Who is sufficient to sort out how to work through each situation as salty, bright, aromatic Christians? None of you. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you are. The Holy Spirit gives us the goods. Jesus is equipping these guys to be hated by the world. And right in the middle of it, he says, but I'm going to send a helper. And the helper will help you sort this thing out. The fact that hatred by the world is so hard to sort out means that you need the Holy Spirit to get it done. Last passage I want to share with you this morning is in Galatians. I just want you to listen. I'll tell you where it is if you want to look at it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. I don't know if it's the NIV or if it was a preacher years ago that took me to a place. It may have been the NIV that I read years ago that packaged that phrase, walk by the Spirit, as stay in step with the Spirit. I connected for me as a former Marine, learning how to march, look like a
1: goofball.
0: You're trying to learn how to stay in step with people without looking at them. And watching units that were well-drilled, It moved like one person, no heads bobbing, arms moving at the same distance, 40 inches all around, I mean, locked and loaded, shoulders dressed. I Say, man, that unit is in step with each other, this vision of being in step with the Holy Spirit. There's got to be an attentiveness. There's a rhythm that comes to being in step with a unit, a rhythm that you're caught up in. You don't have to look around. You're caught up in it because you're part of it. Staying in step with the Holy Spirit means that you are caught up in prayer. It means that you're caught up in a journey that people of God are on. It means that you're caught up in his word. You're caught up in worship and wonder so that the Holy Spirit will give you insight into how to handle yourself in each of these various situations where you're called on to be aromatic, seasoned, salty, and yes, even hated. He will guide you how to not be a Barney Fife. He will guide you in how to be true and how to bring glory to God in that situation. It ought to be good news to you that we have the Holy Spirit. How are we to, like our Master, testify about the world that its works are evil? We're to enjoy Christ out loud and we are to stay in step with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray lord i 'm thankful that it's uh, that you use worship to put the gospel on display that you use out loud worship i 'm thankful that you don 't use schemes or methods or um, man-made tools but you just use the simple journey of an out loud aromatic fragrant Christian to put the gospel on display and I'm thankful that even in that one event that while some may say that that smells like death no thanks that others say that smells like life and I want to know who the source of that life is Lord, I pray as a result of the last five weeks that we've spent together considering being hated by the world, that we'll be faithful to be salty and bright and aromatic and seasoned and fragrant. Lord, I pray for these men. I burden for men that have spent 18 years working in a cubicle or in a workspace or with a team of men that they've never been salty or bright or aromatic among. Lord, I pray for courage for them to just be the same man that they are at small group. Lord, I pray for courage for them to be the same man that they are when we gather corporately on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. And Lord, I pray that you will use that to spread a fragrance in that context. Lord, I pray that someone will be hated for Christ's sake because they are fragrant in the workplace. Lord, I pray too that this will move into little league. It'll move into scouts. It'll move into neighborhoods. It'll move into Thursdays. It'll move into family gatherings. And the people of God will be out loud and aromatic and that you will use that for your own glory. Well, I'm thankful for this difficult journey that we've had over the last five weeks. I'm thankful that it's really brought clarity, the reality that, that it's not tidy. Lord, I'm thankful with this church for the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. It gives us insight into wisdom in how to respond in these settings, in these situations. Lord, I pray that we as a people can be in step with the Holy Spirit through prayer, through study, through teachability, through attentiveness, that we can be caught up in the movement of a unit together that are dressed and covered, moving in step with each other with the Holy Spirit for your glory. Lord, we love you. I'm so thankful for these sweet weeks that we've had together, surprise weeks. So blessed by our Master and as servants we continue this morning in worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in supper.
1: Each week when we come to this supper, communion, body, blood, bread and juice, when we come to that, we proclaim things, we proclaim something, we say something, God says a great deal, but we, we proclaim something when we take this supper together, and uh, this is 1 Corinthians 1126, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death. Another word for that is atonement. We proclaim his death, his atonement, sacrifice, his death is the only death that brings life. Any sacrifice we bring in here today, anything that we think will soothe our guilt and our weary heart, a few dollars chunked in that plate, the fact that we did our hair and got dressed up and got the kids here sort of on time, that's not a sacrifice. There's only one, That we proclaim. There's only one death that brings life. There's only one sacrifice that's worth anything, and it's His death. It's His atonement, and that's the one that we proclaim and enjoy. And if you are, if that's the first time you've heard that, a preacher or anybody say that there's nothing in you good enough or worth saving yourself, there's nothing, and you don't bring anything to the table that may not smell good. But for some of you, maybe this is your first time here or first few times here, and that does smell good because you're tired. If you're tired and you're beat up by your sin and you're beat up by your failures this week, hey, join the club. But let's rest in one death. Let's trust Jesus together. And we do that when we take this. We remember him and we proclaim something. We proclaim one sacrifice, good enough, that's it. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink Do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes, take and drink. Father, we're thankful for one death, one sacrifice, and that's what we trust. And until you come back, we're going to proclaim that very thing. We pray that our hearts would give out of the overflow of the heart and not in an attempt to earn anything, but that we would trust in the righteousness of another, even in this moment as we worship in our giving. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to just say something brief to visitors. I,
0: I know we really probably don't do the best job in the world of really kind of... Uh, i trying to think of the word. Catering is not a good word. Um, winning, visitors. We, we don't do a good job of presenting our features and benefits because we're not, and I, and I don't want to condemn a church that's doing that well. I really don't. But I want you to know that we want the Holy Spirit. If the Lord leads you to cross one fellowship, we want to make sure it's the Holy Spirit and not us putting on a good sales pitch. Hopefully, you spread that out over a period of time where you say, okay, what are these people doing? Are they on a journey? I hope that's what you're looking for, journey, a legitimate journey that creeps into the rest of the week. Are they just getting their church on? I hope you see the former. If you don't, then I would bet that you're just here on Sundays and you don't know anybody yet, and that's a tragedy. Seriously, that's tragic. The church, by definition, is people that are involved in each other's lives. I mean, you heard what we talk about today. Turn him over to Satan so that his soul might be saved. Flesh will be destroyed so that his soul might be saved. There's intimate knowledge of this man and his family. I mean, we've got to be involved in each other's lives. So if you're visiting and you're like, man, I want to kind of see what these guys are about. You come hear sermons on Sunday mornings and that's spread over a period of time, but you still haven't gotten to know anybody. I'd say you still haven't gotten another church. I mean you could like the music, you could like the or tolerate the preaching. Seriously. And miss, I mean, miss the real cream. And the cream is the community, the people of God that are on a journey together. So I urge you, it's not a pitch. I just urge you to be part of something that's really good and that would be getting to know other people. And it can be informal. It could be, hey, let's go to lunch together. I don't know anybody at this church. Let me turn to a family and say, let's go to lunch together. Or it could be something a little more formal like small groups. We have like 12 of them that meet all different times during the week in all different geographic areas around in and around Greenville. That's the way I stay in touch with folks. Not the only way, but it's one way that I'm committed to, is knowing and being known in, in little micro versions of the, or micro sections of the church. So I, I urge you, if you're a visitor, if you're here the first time, that may be too much. You might be just jumping on both feet sort of person. And that's cool. Knock yourself out. I mean, but at least in the next few weeks, if you're kind of more shy about something like that, yes, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> It's uncomfortable for everybody unless you're just a real weird extrovert the just <laughs> the life of the party kind of person, you know. And not all extroverts are weird, I'm just saying. If you're not like me, if you're not like me, you're weird. So that's what I'm saying because I'm not that kind of guy. It's, it's energy. It, it's uncomfortable to get to know new people. But it's good when you've done it. And then you look back and you're like, why didn't I do this before now? It's so good. Why, what I, what, how long did I miss out on something that good? So I urge you, it's not a pitch. It's just a, man, I, I care about you even if you're a visitor, even if I don't know you, just because I know what, what's in store if you make that effort. Um, also for visitors and for those who've been visiting some, I want you to know that what we're doing here on Sunday mornings, that we're not kind of in a lull of just preaching. This is what we do. <laughs> Well, they don't have much going on right now. they just preaching. This is what we do. We preach in, in, in community, walk in what we've heard. No smoke and mirrors. We're not peddling anything. It's just the exposed word that all of us, including myself and the other elders and our families, are seeking to walk in obediently. You're like, is that all you do? Yeah, that's a handful. <laughs> is there more than that that's worthwhile? No, that's enough. Thank you very much. I got my hands full with that. So, I, you know, just think about what you're looking for. Uh, if, you're, if you're trying to discern, okay, what even is the church? There's a series of sermons online you can go back and listen to and kind of figure out where we stand as a church on what church is. You can throw a rock in any direction and find church, church buildings and little peoples of faith. But you should let the Word be the thing that tests test out what you're seeing, what you're engaging. And that goes for here, too. We are always accountable always approachable, always available if you have questions, hey, what are you doing or why are you not doing this? We're accountable. This is our authority. It's my authority, too. So I encourage you to do that. Um, The last thing I have uh, announcement-wise, and I want to introduce a family for membership, is I want to encourage you, if you're able, and it's possible, to be part of Wednesday Nights. Uh, There's a Genesis study for adults in here. Uh, there's a Genesis study for youth um, at the Adele's home, and then there's a kids' Genesis study that goes on in the tree house and in the end of the building down here in the kids' rooms. And I'm telling you right now, teachers pour themselves into being prepared and unpacking the Word in little bitty lives, little bitty plots of soil. So um, yeah, I know it's an effort to get out on a Wednesday night, but I want to just let you know that I think it's an effort that's worthwhile. Saddlers, y'all come on up. This is Terry and Theresa and Sam is being carried by Terry. This is Sydney in the, um, what color dress is that, Sydney? Pink, okay. And um, Caitlin, Sydney's birthday is today, and when you join the church on your birthday, we get, you get to sing happy, but you get to hear it. So we're going to sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Sydney. Happy birthday to you. Sweet. Now, if any of you joined the church on your birthday and that didn't happen, we're not going to retro. We'll just say that was yours too. We retroactive, um, but we're we're glad to have this family. Terry uh, is a physical therapist. My wife works some for his um, clinic in here in town, and and she's had the opportunity to get to know Terry through work. And he's a man of faith that's leading his family on a journey. And uh, we're blessed as a people. I'm blessed as an elder uh, to get to know this family and to have the privilege of walking with them. Theresa has been involved in the pregnancy clinic and. Um, Rafa is what it's called now and she she still has real connections to this ministry and she's uh, working right now in a ministry called Chrysalis working with uh, women who have gone through abortions post-abortive sort of issues that they're working through and and Lord is uh, really using her in so many ways so I encourage you to get to know this family I get to teach Caitlin on Wednesday nights and she's a good student and uh, right Caitlin (laughs) Right. When you stand in front of everybody, you ask that question, you have to say yes. So we're, it's a privilege to, to join the journey officially with y'all. Let me pray with you and for you. Y'all, let's pray. Let's stand. God, we're thankful for this family, thankful for the sweet privilege of, of walking with them in faith. Lord, I pray that this morning, as a kind of a, a christening of ministry as part of this church, that you will use this family for your glory. Lord, I pray for approachability with the elders. I pray for teachability in the family. I pray for Terry as he shepherds his family that he.